Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award-winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 120. My name is Naman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone! So a big thank you to our last guest, Amy Cohen-Epstein, who discussed the Lynn Cohen Foundation she founded. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest today, Charlotte Buttercase, who will be discussing medical school and clinical immunology. Hi Charlotte, how are you? Hi, I'm alright, thank you. Great to have you here. Would you mind just starting and telling us what your current role is and what you're up to at the moment? Of course. So, um, hi, it's nice to be here. Um, I'm Charlotte Buttercase. I've done three years of medical school and I'm currently intercalating in a Master's in Clinical Immunology at the University of Manchester. Sounds very impressive. What does all that mean, Charlotte? (laughs) So... It sounds impressive, but honestly, I've I've learned so much in such a short time from this course, and it's 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 absolutely fascinating. So essentially, any way that the immune system can go wrong, this course encompasses. So we've done everything. I started in September, and we've done everything from newborns who have these really unique, rare conditions that are just because of genetic changes, right through to why do elderly patients get cancers? Why do cancers react differently to certain treatments? It's brilliant. And it's not just for medical students. I'm with clinical scientists as well. There's people from biotechnology on my course. It's really brilliant. And I always sound like I'm sponsored by the course, but it's brilliant. It's good though. That it sounds you're very passionate. Um, why medical school? Why did you want to be in healthcare? That's a good question, actually. So, um, I was really most inspired to pursue healthcare when I was younger. So I'm the youngest of four siblings um, and my eldest sister is 10 years older. And when I was eight and she was 18, she was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And that was a really monumental moment in my childhood. I'd really never encountered chronic disease before. And my big sister, she was so much older. She was like a mum in a way. She was like a third parent. So seeing her go through that, she's an incredibly resilient, strong person and I actually got quite involved with her journey I guess I used to help her like set up her insulin injections and things and then as I continued through schooling I realized okay maybe I don't have to be a diabetic nurse maybe I could actually even take it further and be a doctor so that was kind of my path into medicine that's the story I always tell people when they ask me why I'm doing this it really does come back to that at the end of the day and why immunology I guess quite specific and it's something that not everyone encounters it is it really is and everybody I tell that I'm doing immunology particularly from so I'm University of Manchester all the way they think I'm crazy because immunology is just so broad and there's so many avenues you can go down but I love that there's so much to sink your teeth into and I think I'm so early in my medical career there's no specialty that I could one day go into that'll turn around to me and say oh the immune system's irrelevant to us so it really does encompass everything I love about medicine which is science and there's history to it there's so much future potential in it it's just it's so interesting I really encourage people to read about it more one thing you wish all healthcare professionals knew about the immune system oh wow Honestly, there's so much I could say. I really think that the immune system just, it dictates everything. Like, there's even suggestion that when you're in your mother's womb, 
that her immune system alters your development and your exposure to different pathogens and microbes throughout your lifetime also changes your development and all the stuff about like your intestines and your microbiome how that relates to mental health there's so much potential in the immune system and i really think it underpins so much more than we're giving it credit for right now and i think it's kind of an unsung hero in my very biased opinion right now and the more i dig into it in a masters the more i'm seeing this and it's oh it's so great <laughs> There was an award that you won, wasn't there, Charlotte? Just because I did a bit of a stalk of your LinkedIn profile. The, the 2021 Weight Hydrocephalus Bursary Award. Do you mind talking us through what that is? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I'm very flattered, first of all. Um, I was really, really fortunate with that award. So that was the first taste I really got of research. So my family are absolutely brilliant, but I was the first to really pursue a career in science at all. So in terms of connections, I'd never had an opportunity to be in a laboratory before, really. And one of my... We have um, problem-based learning in our course at Manchester. And one of my supervisors, facilitators for that, was Dr. Jaleel Mian. And he had, I believe, one of his children actually passed away from hydrocephalus. And he was connected to the Society for Research into Hydrocephalus and Spina Bifida. And the Waite family was similarly affected by this disease and they created an award to encourage medical students to pursue research and thanks to him I was put in connection with that society and got this amazing opportunity to go it was after my first year of medical school and spent a whole summer in a lab doing a research project and actually it was in Alzheimer's not even hydrocephalus but it was using cerebrospinal fluid samples and brain samples and analyzing the metabolites that were present because they think there might be a connection between folic acid metabolism and development of Alzheimer's. So it was really like, blew my head off in terms of the stuff that they were looking into because he really has devoted his life and all of his lab work to this research. So it was a fantastic opportunity and I'm so grateful to him and the Waite family for that opportunity. What's been the highlight of medical school so far, Charlotte? Highlight of medical school, wow. Um, you know what, despite it being such a steep learning curve I really think the time that I spent on placement in year three has really been formative but honestly my absolute highlight I have been so fortunate in the doctors that I've encountered in every specialty I rotated through I've had mentors who have really taken me under their wing um, I've had some really brilliant ones in oncology at the moment I've got Dr. Rebecca Lee, who's a medical oncologist at the Christie. She's really taken me on and she's helping me do some clinical research with her. She was a supervisor for a project I did before, but she's still mentoring me now, even though it's way past the time she's getting paid to do it. I had um, Mr. Anthony Chan, a general surgeon, really inspiring, has really given me lots of career advice, steered me in the right direction, helped me apply to this clinical immunology program. So yeah, to be honest, year three and just actually getting out on the wards and meeting patients, but also really amazing doctors who have these, this huge potential for generosity, that's probably been my highlight, to be honest. You said you're doing an intercalated year. Does everyone do that? And is it a benefit 
to kind of your studies and your education? So it's not something that everybody does. You have some institutions that are a bit more classic, like Cambridge and Oxford, where everybody has to. But at Manchester, it's an elective thing. So I had um, a friend, I was in the Medical Debating Society in first year, who she did a intercalated year between third and fourth year in molecular pathology. She's a really good friend of mine. She's an F2 now, but she was quite influential in my decision to take this on. And in terms of benefit to my education, I think that, as I was saying before, year three was a steep learning curve. And I think academically, I found it really challenging because I never really had an example, a framework to follow of how on earth do I become a well-rounded doctor who acknowledges every member of all clinical teams by being on the wards nine to five, but then also come home and expand myself academically, educate myself on the core stuff of medicine, like how do I do both? So for me, taking a year out and doing a master's, it's helping sort of grow my confidence in my abilities in research. It's hopefully giving me future qualifications. And also I can really get into immunology, which I think I'm making it quite obvious. I'm a massive geek for. Um, I actually just really dig into it and there's nothing holding me back now. I've not got like OSCEs to prepare for. I don't have a ward shift to go and do. I can just be like, yeah, I'm just going to sit and I'm going to read about this today. If you had, um, you know, prospective students who were thinking about kind of going to medical school or specialising specifically in that field, um, what advice would you give them? Because it's a big step, isn't it? You know, that decision to go into something that takes so long and so much dedication to commit to, you know, what what advice would you give them? It's interesting you say that, actually, because I'm actually mentoring three girls at the moment. So I've got one who'd like to be a radiographer, like yourselves. I've got one who'd like to do pharmacy. Yeah. And another who'd like to actually go to medical school. And they're three wonderful, really driven, hardworking girls. And I think the advice I give to them is just, I think it's just make sure you're going into it for the right reasons. I think medicine, internationally, I guess, it's surrounded with supposedly these huge accolades and it's kind of put on a bit of a pedestal. And you sometimes get people who are attracted to the profession for the prestige. But I think I'm so much more moved by people who there's a selflessness to them and they're doing this because they genuinely care about science and applying that to better people's lives and I think when you come into medicine in that way it doesn't matter what position you're in at the end of the day it's a I always think of medicine as like a team sport doesn't matter which role you're in you're absolutely critical and you all have a shared goal which is to improve people's lives and if you come into it with that attitude You'll see every patient like your own sister, your own granddad, your own cousin. And it's just, you don't mind so much about the trials and tribulations. It's just, it's so good. You talked about the intercalated year, Charlotte. Just for anyone who doesn't know what happens in med school, what do you do in the other years? Okay, so it's funny that you say that because every single person I say intercalation to is like, what? I'm pretty sure my dad still doesn't quite understand what I'm doing. He's just like, you're still in medical school though, right? And I'm like, technically yes, technically no. Sort of first and second year, it's your pre-clinical studies. Now, if you go to somewhere, again, like Oxford, Cambridge, 
this kind of spreads across three years because you do one year where you I don't know do anatomy for a year or something as a bachelor's degree but typically it's two to three years of preclinical studies and that's your really nitty-gritty science stuff so that's when you do your dissection classes you learn about which nerve innervates this specific muscle that carries out this specific movement and what does this drug do which receptors does this cell express it's that that stuff that if a patient were to ever look me in the eyes and ask me that i would be terrified and confused but of course it's crucial that you understand it so that you can apply that to clinical studies but after two to three years you start going on to the wards at Manchester it's a very gradual process so you start year three with your really core specialties so for me I was so lucky I literally got to go through cardiology respiratory general surgery endocrinology and then just general medicine so you can't get any more kind of baseline than that um, and then in fourth year you've kind of been in medical school long enough that you can take on the really challenging stuff so I live with three other medics and currently they're doing an F and C rotation which is essentially you do lots of things like obstetrics and gynaecology you do breast you do a separate week on cancer you also do pediatrics then you've got the other side of things where you've got um, rheumatology you've got ophthalmology psychiatry so it's really intense stuff and then of course you've got your final year which is you know the big one lots of people get stressed out towards kind of february time depending on your university it's finals the big final push but yeah you sort of have pre-clinical clinical and then freedom i guess <laughs> lowercase f <laughs> Now, from a student's perspective, you know, Numan and I have lots of colleagues who are medics, GPs. It's challenging at the moment, um, to say the least. From a student's perspective, and you obviously being within the student cohort, just the perceptions of kind of working in the NHS at the moment, you know, how can we better support those new staff coming into the healthcare service to ensure that they stay? Gosh, what a brilliant question. So um, I'm quite fortunate in Manchester in that we've got a very active set of BMA representatives. Um, one of them is a close friend of mine, Nora Al-Safar, and we also have a girl called Hannah Morgan. So we even organised, when the BMA protest came to Manchester, they organised for Manchester medical students to actually go along and support that protest. And I think... The general consensus is, I think it's incredibly demoralizing for a lot of people. I think um, as much as I say this is an incredibly special profession that people give so much to, I think to feel so undervalued and disrespected in what they do has been really tough for people, particularly my cohort. We started during COVID, which was really hard. And again, that was something that was underestimated, not just in medicine, but across university. So to see such a drastic 180, to go from frontline workers getting applauded to you're asking for too much when you're doing so little, it feels as if someone was lying somewhere. 
someone wasn't telling the truth. And I think, fortunately, everyone's still so passionate about this career that they will stay in medicine. But in terms of staying in the UK, I just think, to be honest, the camaraderie between healthcare professionals has been huge in keeping people in the NHS because we're all in it together. But I think in terms of the future and people staying, there does need to be a sort of institutional level shift in how doctors are being treated. Is passion enough to stay motivated? (sighs) Good question. Um, I actually, my dad's great. He's always been someone who really reads and encourages us as his kids to really get into conversations with him about politics and passion and stuff. So my dad at the age of 61 constantly says that he's still got this passion like he's still quite young but I think I've lost my motivation around these things and I had a real burning passion for it like I said I was a debater I was always you know collaborating with other universities talking about these things talking about the real issues you know part of keep the NHS public stuff like that but um yeah it's it's not for everybody and as I say people are demoralized right now they're losing motivation they're losing momentum but that's why I think I have a lot of gratitude, as I say, for our BMA representatives who just seem to have this incomparable capacity to represent us. Um, And then you've also got the higher up BMA representatives as well who are doing so much on behalf of so many that I'm grateful to them. But yeah, as you say, passion, passion can't solve everything. Charlotte, you've mentioned a little bit about research and obviously the work that you're doing um, forms part of that evidence base. Do you want to talk us through a little bit of the research that you've been engaged with? Yeah, of course. So um, in terms of research, I've tried to not fall into the trap that I think we can feel pushed towards, which is to just churn it out. So I think there's so much emphasis on portfolio and points that sometimes people do papers for the sake of it. So I've been involved with a few sort of academic research societies over the years, but the first paper I did was after the Weight Hydrocephalus Award. I was involved with another neurological society for a while and we would try to do some papers, but I think they just lacked grit. They lacked substance, so they didn't really come to fruition. But now, since year three, My favourite thing I'm working on is actually looking at, so it's sort of pre-treatment and during treatment responses to immune checkpoint inhibitors for patients with advanced melanoma. So that's with Dr. Rebecca Lee Um, and she's really fantastic. She's super supportive, really great mentor. I'm, I'm learning so much about how to properly conduct research, how to properly write it up. Um, she's hopefully helping me get some opportunities to present it as well so we've not fully completed our data yet I did about 250 patients as part of we sort of have a research component in every year of medical school at Manchester but I think I've got the number next to me now I've got 511 more to do so we're still quite early days but yeah that's that's what I'm up to at the moment and then of course in my master's I'll get a research project as well but I've got to sort of pick a supervisor for that yet so who knows what I'll do. When you said um, the patient stuff what specifically are you doing with them and yeah how do you recruit into what you're doing? So in terms of the patients um, the Christie Hospital 
Um, they have pre-approval from patients, so they ask them if they're happy for their data to be used first. They have ethics approval and things that were sourced for us, but we're essentially using previous data for patients. I think the earliest we're using is 2015 to look at what happened with them on their treatment. So what treatment were they on? How did they feel on it? What was their status in terms of metastasis sites? And how did things go? Did they reach progression-free survival at any point? Um, did they manage to achieve, you know, no disease sites eventually? And it's mostly a spreadsheet job. So luckily Dr. Lee has a lot of experience in this field. So she created a big spreadsheet for me and I essentially go through, it's a retrospective study going through patient notes. It's quite a long-winded one, but it's strangely motivating because there there really is something to it. We're specifically looking at how liver metastases, so new tumours in your liver, influences how people respond to treatment. So you can actually see differences when I'm going through it. So it makes me want to finish off my numbers so I can chuck them in some statistical studies. But yeah, just a spreadsheet job. You're a very special type of student, Charlotte, to be so enamoured by all the data and statistics. You're going to be headhunted after this podcast episode goes live. I'd be very flattered. <laughs> we don't often get such passion around data collection, um, but it is it is when those things start to emerge, isn't it? You have to go through the process, and once you have you know those things that you can really see in a tangible way that has potentially a clinical impact, I think that's what that's what drives people, isn't it, to go through all that statistical analysis and data collection. Um, but yeah, well done. <laughs> So, Charlotte, in terms of kind of um, future progression, what's kind of your career aspirations moving forwards? Have you already thought about how you may utilise your MSc within your medical role or potentially what you might want to specialise in? Absolutely. It's something I've given a lot of thought to. And when I've described it to people, I say that oncology and I sort of have like a, a toxic relationship where I keep trying to tear myself away but they just keep pulling me back. I just can't can't seem to fully get away from it. So it's not because I don't love it, I do. I think it'd be a great career for me, but I am also just 21. Who knows what 41 year old me will think of this decision. Certainly I wonder if when I wanted to be a postman at the age of seven, that's kind of like the time difference <laughs> that I'd be experiencing further down the line. So. I never want to overcommit, but I just think oncology is brilliant and it's got so much potential again. And I'm very much at the immunology side of things, so like immuno-oncology. I've seen so many cool applications of clinical immunology. So you can even go down the sort of hematology oncology route. You can go down the clinical oncology route. In Manchester, we're really lucky. We've got proton beam therapy at the Christie and I managed to see them mapping things out and it's so cool. So they, they have gantries. They have four that are for patients and then they have one at the end. London has the same setup. They use the N1 for private care. But here we use it for research. And there's these guys that when no patients are there, they go in at like 10 p.m. till 3 a.m. And they do their Ph.D. research with these proton beams. And they use like cell preparations or they use 
various different cell models and they stay up sort of like the deep hours of the night and they're doing all this research at looking how tumor microenvironments change and stuff when you use this therapy so there's so much potential that I could use it for in oncology but who knows ask me again in six months and it might be a different answer and for anyone who is intrigued as to what they actually do in proton therapy in the depths of the of the evening, then please check out Mike Merchant's episode because he is one of those researchers, Charlotte, who's uh, been on the podcast. Episode 81 for anyone who wants to check it out. Charlotte, you mentioned talking about your future career aspirations that you were, I don't know, you weren't sure what 41-year-old you would say. Is that something you're worried about? It's not a worry per se, but like I alluded to earlier, I have a sister who's a decade older than me. And over the summer, I tried to devote my summers to doing something non-medical because I think it's important for me to stay well-rounded and kind of, I don't know, in touch with the other passions I have. And I was an au pair for kids that were over 10 years younger than me. And I was just thinking to myself, my gosh like this is the age gap between my sister and I that's literally a child that's how she's always seen me so she's changed so much as I've sort of moved into adulthood seeing the changes all my siblings go through I know that that's what's waiting for me as well like that's what's in store for me so I'm not worried about it I think it's a part of being human that you change and you grow and opinions change you know, I'm lucky to have a partner of four years. If you'd said to me when I was 16, was I thinking about having a partner at all? I'd have probably been like, no, I want to go to medical school. But now he's great. He's an engineer. He's a proper nerd. He loves astronomy. And he's going on a stargazing trip. You know, stuff changes. Stuff comes along. <laughs> Sean, I think you two are great to have at a dinner party. You can just imagine the conversations from, like, one cell through to space (laughs) trust me it's brilliant because i have so many more people in my life because he doesn't live in manchester he's down south and he does mechanical engineering and the comparisons you can actually draw between medicine and engineering is brilliant i loved maths i loved physics in school so to be with somebody who's learning about fluid dynamics when i'm learning about blood pressure and how blood vessels respond to things it's kind of like wait, you're doing the same thing as me, just on actual pipes. Hey, we've actually got some similarities now, so you'd be surprised how much overlap there is. He worked on um, a synchrotron. So when I go to the Christie and I see they're using a cyclotron, which is essentially a tiny bit of a synchrotron, I was like, hey, another overlap. How has this happened? We're so different in what we're studying, and yet there's so much potential. You might be a radiation oncologist in the future, Charlotte. You never know. You see what I mean? I wouldn't have even considered that six months ago. Constantly excited by stuff. If your partner likes that engineering side, um, we had uh, Richard Baker on, um, who was a who is a, sorry an engineer within radiotherapy. Just doing more shout outs to other episodes we've done. I think it's um, 106 is the episode number. We should get him to have a listen if he wants to consider a career in radiotherapy engineering. Honestly, this is just overwhelming me. What a great opportunity this is. The people that you're saying you've spoken to before, it's making me go all kind of woozy. I'm just, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and be like, no, I wasn't on that podcast. That's not me. (laughs) 
What do you wish other medical students knew about research and career prospects? I think a lot of medical students that I have maybe coached when they've come into radiotherapy have not realised like this other world of healthcare with other MDT kind of team members and how it kind of intercalates. Gosh, um, I am forever grateful that I haven't come from a background of academia because it just meant my whole life has been about I respect every industry like I do not have anybody in my ear telling me who and who is and who isn't valuable like my instincts on wards have always been drilled into me from my mum if a nurse comes over to the station you get out of that seat and you give her that chair like you say thank you you get her a cup of tea or a coffee you soak up everything they have to say like a sponge like just know that everybody there is an opportunity so i kind of wish everyone had that attitude i guess um yeah like i've got uncles who are plumbers aunties who are policemen like honestly my family is just incredibly diverse in the number of jobs that we've taken on so um yeah i just guess come in open-minded there was a nurse doing um she was working on a master's when i was at the christie and she was doing a survey that was about it was a long-term follow-up clinic for people who'd had brain tumors when they were children and they were coming in now to have their side effects assessed at like the age of 60 and she was going around and talking to those patients and she had such a amazing project that she was delving into and I feel like so many medical students don't even realise that half the time nurses, radiographers, midwives, everyone, they're going to know so much more than you and there's so much potential there. Like, shadow them, learn from them. If the registrar is not giving you anything because they're snowed under, go along with that nurse because they're going to know so much and just give everyone an opportunity. And yeah, like my mum always said, be a sponge, take every chance. I think that's what I want people to think. Do you have much um, engagement with patients? Do you find that the curriculum that you've been given is based off of patient experience? So I think that was actually a real draw to Manchester University for me. Um, when I was doing work experience when I was young, they always said to me how centred Manchester was around being a good communicator, first and foremost. Um, and Manchester, I've been drilled into me that medicine is patient-centred from the first week that I got here. It's so important that people learn how to listen as much as talk to patients. It's so important that they learn to listen to colleagues. Um, I actually, I applied to a job at the BNJ last year where my whole article was about, I think the MDT should be a standard part of medical school. I was saying that we've trialled at Manchester these overlap classes with medical students and pharmacy students and they were crazy invaluable. Like we were talking about asthma drugs and they were getting quizzed about different trials about them and they were they just knew things that I could never dream of being able to say so quickly and off the cuff and yeah, Manchester's really good at always being open-minded to things like that. And sometimes we overlap with physio trainees on the wards. We overlap with nursing students on the wards. 
And it's just so great. It's just a friend at the end of the day. Someone else who's on the ward. You're kind of insignificant in comparison to everyone else working there. And there's a bit of solidarity there. Like, when's your lunch? Don't know, do I? It's whenever they tell me I'm allowed to go. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I'm lucky at Manchester. Charlotte, with some of the conversations and stuff that you have and will probably have with patients, how do you look after your well-being? That's um, probably one of the most important skills I've been learning to hone over the years because there's a line to how much I can talk about with people and there's a level of confidentiality we always have to ensure, but equally, I'm not going to do my best for people if I can't get certain things off my chest. So at Manchester, we have included classes that are mandatory where you have to go to something called clinical debrief every week as soon as you've been on wards every week you have to go to clinical debrief and they have a gp tutor you split into groups of six and you have a gp tutor and you sit for i think it's like three and a half hours and you talk about it first half is actually just like talking about your week and i think second half you like go through clinical cases but that was huge in year three because you know it's a safe space, it's attached to the university hospital, you know it's set time, and you don't need to burden anybody with it because that's their whole role. Like they need to sit there and you've also got your peers who are gonna kind of give their input and be like, wow, that sounds really tough. Like we've attended things as heavy as like mortality and morbidity meetings where they've said, guys, you can't even talk about this outside of here. And they say, but as your consultants, you are allowed to come and talk to us about it. And there's always, we have some great infrastructure to help that. But for me personally, like I say, I always try and remember that I'm a human being first, medic second, and I love this career so much. But like for my 21st, I just had people round to do crochet, which is so random, but it was just a new hobby I'd taken up. And it was, I want to say 95% medical students, but we put Taylor Swift on, people were learning how to crochet, and it's not dissimilar from doing like surgical knots, but it was really good fun. People tried a new hobby. I've got a friend who's made like, I think she made a top and her partner a matching bag. And it's like, I don't know, just finding things like that, where we don't need to talk about patients. We're there for each other. And it's, if you've had a hard day, I don't need you to explain, I know. If you do need to explain, you've got that option at the uni. I'm always here for you, I know what you're going through, and I know we can't really talk about it. So, yeah, that's kind of what I've done. That's really nice. I think that peer support is, yeah, invaluable. Charlotte, we're coming towards the end of the episode. You've given us loads of really good top tips already. But we were just wondering if you'd give us some top tips um, that patients could take away onto how to ask their doctor uh, questions. Oh, gosh. From a patient side, I think I've just always had it in my head that patients are like the centre of my universe. So to give them advice, it's kind of going against my every instinct. I guess just know that if you come out of an appointment feeling like your needs weren't met that's not on you like don't be afraid to ask questions 
Um, and if they've not been communicated properly, we're supposed to have spent five years in medical school and two foundation years learning to do that better. So I guess top tip number one is just realize that we've been taught that you are the center of our universe, I guess. Um, or at least that's how we should think about you. Um, oh yeah, don't, don't Google too much. <laughs> because um, I think it can be a bit scary out there sometimes. And I think that's a great thing I've learned from taking a year out to do research, is we are trying to learn that, not to discredit when people have read things, and particularly there's controversy around like vaccinations and stuff as immunology students. We're learning how to actually validate people's worries whilst equally presenting them with the evidence that we know and understand. Like, there's no question that's a stupid question as a patient, you are entitled to ask anything like in those safe spaces and it should be a safe space for you so i think those are perfect very honest and authentic so thank you um but yeah thank you so much for coming on as a guest it's been very insightful um and i think you've given so many brilliant tips for anyone listening oh, thank you it's been really lovely to be here it's been <laughs> nice to chat with you guys thank you all for listening to rad chat so your hosts today have been numman joker anderson and joe mcnamara if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate. Please complete the form link to the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Nicola Nuttall, who will be discussing the Be More Laura Foundation that she founded in memory of her daughter Laura. Thank you for listening and take care.